I suppose that through the years, the number one issue that I've dealt with, with students in particular when it comes to counseling, is the matter of doubt. So let's turn to John chapter 4 today, and I trust this passage actually might have some real help for doubting believers. John chapter 4, and let's locate the third successive record of Jesus conversing with an individual. John chapter 4. Of course, while Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, he conversed with Nicodemus in the night. On his journey back toward Galilee in the north, he passed through Samaria where he conversed with a Samaritan woman. And after coming again to Galilee, Jesus conversed with a third individual whose son was ill. So let's take up our reading with verse 43, John 4 and verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servant met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, At the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Our passage reads in a very straightforward way, but in fact, there are two interpretational difficulties in the passage. And the first, I think, is the easier of the two. It concerns the relationship between this story and a story found in Matthew and Luke where Jesus heals the centurion's servant. Are these actually different versions of the same story? The term servant in Matthew and Luke could possibly refer to a son. It's not actually the standard word for servant. But let's leave this question aside for the moment and deal with the more challenging issue. The second issue concerns the rather enigmatic placement of verse 44. Why does John insert this statement? For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown 
that statement seems incompatible with the next verse. Verse 45, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Well, did Jesus have no honor, or was he welcomed? D.A. Carson, probably the leading evangelical authority on John's gospel, has counted some ten, ten possible explanations of the relationship between verses 44 and 45. And we will not work through all ten. Part of the problem concerns the interpretation of the word hometown, so let's deal with that quickly. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, hometown refers to Nazareth. This is where Jesus was raised. For example, in Luke, Jesus came into the synagogue in Nazareth and taught from the prophet Isaiah. And if you recall, the citizens of Nazareth drove him out of town, attempting to shove him off a cliff. In that context, Jesus said, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But here in John, no mention is made of Jesus coming to Nazareth. Our passage refers to Jesus coming to Cana, not Nazareth. So what are we to make of this? Well, some have suggested that John uses the term hometown with a much broader meaning. It actually can mean something like one's homeland or one's fatherland. And the suggestion, it seems to me, is probably good, since John, in fact, makes no reference to Nazareth. I think John is using the term rather broadly. However, some interpreters have gone beyond that and suggest that hometown or homeland in John, not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but in John, refers to Judea or perhaps to Jerusalem. Jesus was born in Judea, in Bethlehem, which is very close to Jerusalem. And of course, Judea is the epicenter of Judaism and Jesus' spiritual homeland. And if that's the correct interpretation, then John is simply saying in verse 44, Jesus was not honored in Judea. So verse 45, he returned to Galilee where he was welcomed. And it may be just that simple. However, I'm personally unconvinced. And let me explain. Jesus was indeed raised in Galilee, in Nazareth, and he is called Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus of Judea or Jerusalem. The truth is, John himself often associates Jesus with Nazareth. For instance, back in chapter 1 and verse 45, Philip Philip called Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The fact is, nowhere else do we find John presenting Jesus as a man of Judea. Further, viewing Galilee as Jesus' hometown or homeland is compatible with the synoptics, with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which apply the term hometown to Nazareth. It would seem odd for Matthew, Mark, and Luke to refer to Jesus as Jesus from Nazareth and John to refer to Jesus as Jesus of Judea or Jerusalem. That seems rather odd. All that to say, I do believe that verse 44 does not refer to Judea or to Jerusalem. However, John probably is using the term hometown with a broader sense of homeland. 
He's not referring strictly to Nazareth, but to the broader region of Na- in which Nazareth is situated. He's referring to Galilee. And of course, we talk this way all the time. I will sometimes be asked, well, where were you born? And I will say, well, I was born in San Francisco, or I was born in California. Either way, you get the point. I was born out on the left coast, and I'm not a liberal. All right? So, I think that's what's going on here. But if that's the case, what really then is the connection between verse 44 and verse 45? That doesn't really resolve the dilemma. Why does John quote Jesus saying a prophet has no honor in Galilee, verse 44, only to say in verse 45 the Galileans welcomed him? Well, which is it? I actually suggest that that interpretational dilemma is the key to interpreting the whole story that follows. I think John is preparing you for what's to come. He inserts verse 44 in my estimation to prepare us to properly read the following miracle account. And essentially, John wants us to know that there's a difference between welcoming Jesus back to Galilee and fully embracing their local prophet. And there is a difference. Can I say it this way? There's faith, and then there's faith. The following story, I think, concerns a kind of shaky, whimsical, skeptical, almost half-hearted faith. And there are indications in the text the father's faith is not quite so robust as it might first appear. The father, like many Galileans, welcomed Jesus, but there are questions that remain. I think that's how we're supposed to read the following account. The welcome Jesus receives in verse 45 is indeed a kind of qualified welcome. It's qualified by verse 44. And the following story illustrates it. Now, let me give you two reasons why I'm saying this. First, right here in the context, recall the reception that Jesus had in Sychar and in Samaria. Neither Sychar nor Samaria were his hometown or homeland. But Jesus told his disciples those Samaritan fields are ripe for a harvest. Remember this? Look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Or verse 41, and many more believed because of his word. Or end of verse 42, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Well, where do we read of that kind of reception back in Galilee? If you're expecting that back in Galilee, wait a minute. Verse 44 tells you, be cautious. Jesus, as you recall, was indeed driven out of the synagogue in Nazareth. And Matthew told us that Jesus pronounced judgment on Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum for rejecting Jesus. These are all Galilean towns. This is not like Sychar. Now, it is true that many Galileans did finally embrace Jesus. And I believe it was a crowd of Galilean Passover pilgrims that just brought Jesus right up the city gates with their palm branches. So not everybody rejected him, but by and large, we don't see the same kind of scenario in Sychar duplicated in Galilee. All right, so that's the first indication right here in the text 
that I think we need to interpret it in a very qualified way. Secondly, we have already seen this kind of mixed response to Jesus that John speaks of in verses 44 and 45. It's actually a sub-theme that just runs right through John's gospel. There's acceptance, but very often it's very qualified. And let me show you this by turning back to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, let's turn back there momentarily. In this case, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's at the Passover feast. And Jews from all over, including Galilee, have come to Jerusalem for the Passover. But notice what John records in verse 23. And interpret chapter 4 in light of chapter 2. Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Okay, that's good so far as it goes, but look at verse 24, but. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. See how it's qualified? Doesn't that sound like a mixed response? A kind of shaky, whimsical, skeptical faith? Maybe we'll embrace you, but... Well, that statement, I think, sheds considerable light on the situation back in Galilee. Let's turn back to John chapter 4. The Galileans, you recall, were down there at Passover, and they are interested in Jesus' miracles, but are they ready to fully embrace Jesus? Well, read verse 45 in that context. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Who are these people? Well, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Right? So these are the same Galileans that we met down in Jerusalem that Jesus did not fully entrust himself to. They welcomed Jesus home, yes, but again, these are the same people that Jesus was had some reservations about. And that, I think, is why John prefaces verse 45 with verse 44. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Okay? So all of that, I think, really prepares us to read the following account. And I hope that it resolves the interpretational issue with verses 44 and 45. Now, let's move on and let's interpret the following miracle account then as an example of a kind of shaky, whimsical, skeptical faith. And as we interpret it, let's also return to the first issue. Does the account of Jesus healing the official son correspond with the account of Matthew where Jesus heals a centurion's servant or possibly his son? And the answer, I suspect, is no. Nevertheless, comparing the two accounts, I think, is highly instructive. So if you have a bulletin, you may want to pull out of your bulletin the little half sheet that Mary Margaret put in there for us this week. All right? And what I want to do is just read these two accounts side by side, and let's think our way through them, all right? Here again is John's account, verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, 
And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. All right, so that's John's account. And now let's read Matthew's account of the centurion. Verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Let's pause right there. The term translated servant can be translated child or youth or boy. So we continue. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Obviously, when I just read those two accounts, there are differences in terms of the dialogue. But that in and of itself does not mean that doesn't prohibit them from referring to the same event. The fact is, the Gospels never give us a complete record of anything Jesus said on any one occasion. Sometimes the Gospels just pick up on different pieces of the dialogue. But having said that, I think there are some features here that lead me to believe that these are two separate events, similar events, but in fact separate events. And let's just note three of them. First of all, the father in John's account is an official, whereas the man in Matthew's account is a centurion. It's doubtful the official is a synonym for a centurion, although that could be. Secondly, the malady in John is a grievous fever. In Matthew, the malady is paralysis. Now, of course, it's possible the young man simply had both, or that he had a fever that led to paralysis. But I suspect that we're actually dealing with two different problems here. And thirdly, I think there was a considerable difference in tone between the two passages. And when you pick up on it, the tone really, I think, sheds considerable light back on verse 44 and the whole John account. Jesus was not fully honored in his hometown. 
And you sense that when you pick up on the tone of the passages. So let's start with Matthew's account. Jesus' response to the, to, the, to the centurion is very enthusiastic. Wouldn't you say that? Really enthusiastic. He just marvels at the man's faith. He commends his faith in verse 10 as being greater than any in Israel. Well, that would include Galilee. And right on the heels of committing the centurion's faith, Jesus exclaims that many Gentiles will come from the east and from the west, and they will come into the kingdom. That's verse 11. And then Jesus goes on to condemn the Jews, verse 12. The sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, and that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And those are harsh words that he delivered about the Jews in Galilee. So it seems to me that Jesus is very enthusiastic about this centurion and about many other Gentile converts to come, but he is less so about the Jews. Now, when you read John 4, the dialogue is more tepid. Jesus' response to the official in verse 48 expresses not enthusiasm, but skepticism. Look at the words. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, interpret that very carefully. Jesus is not claiming the man, well, he can't possibly believe. The man did, in fact, become a believer. That's true. But Jesus is saying something like, you know, your weak faith needs to be buttressed up by miracles. You need a lot of support to come along. You're not clearly a man of faith yet. You need to have some miracles to really support your faith. When Jesus volunteered to come to the centurion's home, the man said, you know what? There's no need for you to even do that. You didn't have to do that. But look at the man's response. The man's like, Jesus, you come immediately. You come immediately. There's a different quality, I think, to the faith in these two statements. The man approaches Jesus with a problem to be solved. The man approaches Jesus as kind of a last resort. Whereas with the centurion, Jesus is like the first person I would go to. I just think you do not see the same parallel between the faith of the centurion and the faith of the father. The official does not say to Jesus, look, you can just heal my son at a distance. Rather, his response is something more like, Jesus, hurry up and come down already. There's almost a sense of entitlement that you find with the official. Look at verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. That, it strikes me, is a demand rooted in desperation rather than a prayer of extravagant faith. Again, unlike the centurion, he views Jesus as a last resort, not a first solution. He approaches Jesus with a problem to be solved, but he's not yet a man of incredible faith like the centurion. So again, I think there's a real difference in the tone between the two passages. Now it is true that the man comes to believe that Jesus can heal at a distance. But I think there's still some difference between him and the centurion. The centurion arrived at that conclusion on his own. Not exactly told how, but he did. But the official's faith is tinged with doubt. Look at verse 50. Jesus said to him, 
go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And that's good so far as it goes. The man does exercise faith in Jesus, but observe what follows. Keep reading verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that he, his son was recovering. So we asked him the hour that he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. Well, why does the man inquire about the hour that his son was healed? Did the healing really begin exactly when Jesus spoke the word? Is there some doubt here? Is there some skepticism? Are there some reservations here? Is there a way to scientifically test the validity of Jesus' miracle? That's what the man seems to be doing. When the father learned the son was healed, at the very hour that Jesus said, your son will live, we're told again, he believed. Notice the middle of verse 53, we're told a second time, he himself, that's reflexive, he himself believed. He believed in verse 50, that's true. But then again in verse 53, he believed. He believed, but then he believed. John twice tells us he believed, I think, to illustrate that not all belief is of the same quality. You experience that? Not all belief is quite of the same quality. The man exercises a kind of cautious faith, not really having much of a choice. Jesus sent the man away as a test of his belief. It's very interesting. If if he insisted that Jesus come along with him, that's what he wanted, if he insisted Jesus come along with him, that would actually prove his lack of faith because Jesus said, go, your son is healed. So the man really here is on the horns of a dilemma. What do I do? Do I express my faith by going away? Well, Jesus is really testing him, I think, by sending him away. Can you really walk away? Jesus actually forces him to leave in faith. But that faith is hesitant. It needed a whole lot of reassurance. And that's why the father inquired of the exact moment that that miracle occurred. So friends, when you interpret the passage this way, understanding the Father's hesitant faith, doesn't that just really shed considerable light back on verse 44? Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Jesus' native Galileans did indeed embrace Jesus in his hometown. Very often, theirs was a kind of cautious, skeptical embrace. It didn't quite rise to the level of the Gentile centurion, or even the woman at the well, or the citizens of Sychar. There's hesitation. Jesus does not say of these people, I have not found so great faith, not in all Israel. He says that of the centurion, but you don't get the sense that he would say that of this man. So friends, I think what this passage does, especially when you contrast it with Matthew chapter 8, is it points us to two different kinds of converts. And I want to spend a little time just talking through this because I think this might be a real help to some of you. There are some people who just come running into the kingdom of God. 
And there are others who come plodding along with a hesitant faith. The truth is, the extraordinary grace of God just reaches out and embraces both. But we don't all come into the kingdom the same way. I've long been intrigued by the title that David Downing gave to his biography of C.S. Lewis. Here's the title. The Most Reluctant Convert. Downing writes, at age 17, C.S. Lewis explained bluntly to a Christian friend he'd known since childhood, I believe in no religion. There is absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. Fifteen years later, he would write to the same friend on a very different note, Christianity is God expressing himself through what we call real things, namely the actual incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. Now, listen to Downing's reflection. This turnabout, from atheism to Christianity, this turnabout did not reflect a Damascus Road moment. It took Lewis all of those 15 years to change his mind. Well, when you think about the centurion and the official, one was indeed an enthusiastic convert and the other a reluctant convert. But isn't it extraordinary that Jesus has equally ministered to both? People have many ways of coming around to Christ, and no two conversion stories are quite the same. But isn't it wonderful that Jesus pursues us all? That all who come to Christ get the healing? When I was 14 or 15 years old, I put a question to a preacher and a theologian that was really deeply troubling me. Some of you may know P.D. Cherian from India. And I asked him this question. When did Jesus' disciples become true believers? And I thought, there's there's a really clear answer somewhere in the Gospels to that question. I just didn't know where it was. When did Jesus' disciples become true believers? You know what his answer was? I don't know. What? You're like a theologian. You're a pastor. You're a Bible college president. You're supposed to know all this stuff. His answer was, I don't know. That troubled me. I mistakenly thought that everyone had this sort of epiphany moment where he suddenly believed and his whole life changed dramatically and he never doubted again. And I actually coveted that epiphany moment. I talked with a man that I respected about my salvation. He was a pastor and he told me, let's just pray a prayer And here's the metaphor he used. He said, let's drive down this stake. That was a popular metaphor for salvation back in the 1990s. And he said, just write down the date and the time in your Bible and never doubt again. Well, I respect that man, but how long do you think it was before I doubted again? What happens when you have a moment's hesitation in the future? We'd all love to be the centurion, wouldn't we? Wouldn't you love to be the centurion? I mean, Jesus looks at you and he says, I've never seen such great faith in all of Israel, and that's you. I'd love that. But how many of us are the official? We would all love to have that Damascus Road moment, wouldn't we? 
But how many of us follow the path of the other apostles? Would Jesus say of Thomas, like he did the centurion, I have never seen such faith known in all Israel? No. Thomas is the official in John 4 who says, I believe, hey, but wait a minute, what time did that miracle happen yesterday? Thomas is the man that Jesus rebukes in verse 48. Look at it. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Well, that's Thomas. I got to see the resurrection before I believe. What about Peter? Peter made a stunning confession of Jesus' true identity at Caesarea Philippi, only to turn around and deny that Jesus would die and resurrect in Jerusalem. I mean, minutes later. Peter declared he'd never deny his Lord. And promptly, he denied his Lord. Peter preached salvation by faith alone. Peter championed Gentile conversion. Listen to him at the Jerusalem Council. And then he would draw his fellowship from the Gentiles to appease the Jewish legalists. It's like, what's going on, Peter? Do you understand the gospel or not? If you've ever read John Calvin's conversion story, which he records in his commentary on the Psalms, you know that John Calvin, like Paul, had this kind of Damascus Road moment. Calvin wrote in his autobiography, quote, God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame. It's just sudden. But John Wesley was a Peter. Wesley was the official, not the centurion. Today, there is a large cast-iron memorial in the city of London that marks the spot of John Wesley's famous Aldersgate conversion. Anyone been there? Big, 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 huge monument to Wesley. And many mistake his famous Aldersgate conversion as a kind of Damascus Road moment. That memorial is inscribed with a lengthy citation from his journal. And here's what it says. On May 24, 1738, Wesley wrote, In the evening, I went unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter to nine, while he was describing the change which God, which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Well, friends, that definitely sounds like a Damascus Road conversion moment. Just drive down the stake. Write it down in your journal and never doubt again, right? And as a youth, I heard numerous references to Wesley's Aldersgate conversion. It was a kind of paradigmatic example of how one believes. But I never could figure out how to make my heart strangely warmed at a quarter to nine. And I tried. Like, how do you just warm up your heart suddenly? And the truth is, Methodist scholars actually dispute whether this moment actually marked the point of Wesley's conversion. Did you know this? Years earlier, as an Oxford student, Wesley founded Methodism. He was a devout student, rising early for prayer with his colleagues, consuming large portions of Scripture, preaching in prisons, and experiencing a call to the ministry. 
That all happened while he was in college, but he was plagued by doubts. After college, Wesley sailed for America as a missionary to the Native Americans, and he hoped that by rehearsing the gospel over and over and over again in a virgin mission field context, that he would finally just really embrace it and understand it. But those doubts just persisted. En route to America, there was a violent storm that blew up and cracked the ship's mast, imperiling the lives of everybody on board. While most panicked, Wesley observed that a group of evangelical Moravians sang hymns and prayed their way right through the storm. And Wesley was just deeply moved by their faith, and he really desired it for himself. And that's why, upon his return back to England, he went over to Aldersgate to hear the word preached. But even after Aldersgate, Wesley journeyed to the Moravian settlement of Hernhut to study the gospel, the gospel of Matthew in particular, with a Moravian leader, Nicholas Zinzendorf. He was still quite uncertain. And he thought, well, maybe if I can get this theologian to help me understand it, I'll, I'll really be able to embrace it. From there, he came back to England, and he learned that his good friend George Whitfield had taken the radical step of leaving behind the Church of England and going out of doors and preaching the gospels the gospel, out in the open fields. And this act suggested to Wesley and to others the church was doctrinally corrupt. And Wesley said, I'm not willing to take that step. And like Peter, Wesley just aligns himself with the circumcision party. Field preaching felt to Wesley like Peter out there unwilling to eat unclean animals, descending the sheep from the heavens. We just don't do that. It's totally inappropriate. And finally, in April of 1739, this is a year after Aldersgate, Wesley hesitantly accepted Whitfield's invitation to go outside and preach. He was in Bristol. And even there, he wrote in his journal, I could scarce reconcile myself to the strange way of preaching in the fields of which Whitfield set me an example on Sunday, having been all my life till very lately so tenacious of every point relating to decency and order that I should have thought that the saving of souls almost a sin if it had not been done in a church. Well, this act signaled a tacit break with the corrupt church. But Wesley never severed his ties completely. And in his biography of Wesley, Roy Hattersley titles his chapter dealing with the next three years. Okay, this is a year after Aldersgate. The next three years, here's his title, The Almost Christian. Finally, four years after Aldersgate, Hattersley notes, by 1742, Wesley could speak at least for the moment, with the voice of a man who possessed settled conviction. But he arrived at that happy of temporary state after three years of turmoil. Now, I hope none of you go through that, all right? But my question is this. Was Aldersgate, that famous incident, was Aldersgate Paul on the road to Damascus? Or was it Peter at Caesarea Philippi? A great confession followed almost immediately by doubt. I think it was Caesarea Philippi. Now, friends, people travel many roads to come to Christ. But what is it that the centurion and the official have in common? What is it that Paul and Peter 
have in common, whether Damascus or Caesarea Philippi? What is it that John Calvin and John Wesley have in common? And it's not their theology, right? But what is it that John Calvin and John, and John Wesley have in common? What is it that we all have in common? Here's what we have in common. They traveled the road to Jesus Christ. What they have in common is the person they are coming to. What matters, friends, is the destination. What matters is the object of our faith. Marsh really emphasized that last week. What matters is the object of our faith, not the quality of our fickle faith. You understand the difference? It's the object of your faith, not the quality of your fickle faith. Be very careful not to turn faith into a work. Our men on Wednesday night had a little discussion of this. Don't turn faith into a kind of work where you really get to boast. Oh, look at my faith. It's so much better than everybody else's. Friends, our, our boast has to be in the object of our faith. Our boast has to be in the cross of Christ. That's where salvation is. It's not the quality of your faith. It's the object of your faith. Our Lord Jesus Christ redeems, get this, both enthusiastic and reluctant converts. Right? You've got both right there in the text. You've got the centurion and you've got the official. Our Lord Jesus Christ redeems both. And do you recall from Mark chapter 9, one other story about a father who wanted to have his son healed? It's a delightful passage. Maybe you wanted to spend some time reading it this afternoon. His father came to Jesus because his son had these violent seizures. seizures. And Jesus said to him, look, if you believe, I can heal your son. If you believe in me, I can heal your son. Well, that man must have believed because Jesus healed his son, right? If you believe, I'll heal your son. Well, the man must have believed because Jesus healed the son. But do you recall what the man said? I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. I got this really weak, fickle, whimsical faith, but you are the object of my faith. I believe. You deal with my unbelief. I believe. I believe. But clearly, friends, it was not the quality of the man's hesitant faith that mattered. It was the object of his faith that mattered. The man came to Christ. The centurion came to Christ. The official came to Christ. Calvin came to Christ. Wesley came to Christ. Paul came to Christ. Peter came to Christ. What matters is the object of your faith.